This is Ephesians uh, 6 through 20. The armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. All right, well, this morning we're going to continue our series on a new imagination for Jesus. And obviously, as I use these words new, I'm always struck with the fact that, like, it's not really a good thing to have new ideas in the church. Take this as a renewal. I think this will be a fresh imagination. And today I want to talk about a new imagination for Jesus and the devil. We're going to talk about the devil today. So the first thing I want to ask you guys is what is your, what is your imagination of the devil? It, you know, it, it may be a redskin man with horns and a pitchfork, but actually my guess is that you don't fear that devil. My guess is that you don't fear a lot of the images of the devil that we're used to, but actually the things you go about fearing every day are far more elusive, ravenous and destructive capitalism, conservatism or liberalism, rampant hedonism, crime, poverty, government oversight, an eroding neighborliness and a threat to community. Like we live in fear of all sorts of devils that seem to roam around us. And a huge amount of us live in fear of our own failure and unworth. The point is that we live not so much in our culture right now in fear of the devil, but we're running from like many devils all the time. Many threats, most of them unseen in some way, but evidenced and seeable. And so we have made those the things we fear. And so what the devil has really become in our modern culture, and even for many of us in the church, is a tool with rhetorical power. What do I mean by that? It's a persuasive tool in an argument. 
What do we call the devil? Pesticides are the devil, which makes organics angelic, right? Republicans or Democrats are the devil, right? And the other side is angels, take your pick. We make things devils. Kids are devils, parents are devils, alcohol and drugs are the devil, Netflix is the devil, iPhones are the devil. We use it as a tool of persuasive power and to give cultural assignments of good and evil. Rarely do you see a red-tailed devil anymore. Now it's a corporate suit or an amorphous, like, unplaceable persona. In fact, in the time of anonymity in the internet age, a new devil has emerged in pop culture. It's the soulless face always morphing. You can never tell who it is, and the devil creeps underneath it. It's the, like, suit where there's no personality or no name because we are afraid of what we cannot know. And so we make these devils and pop culture utilizes these all the time. Politicians, the church uses devil rhetoric all the time to polarize us into good and evil. So whether you're in a place that claims morality like the church or whether you're in a place like the secular culture that claims in some ways that there's no basis for morality. Everyone's actually really on this good and evil game. In our, in our city, there's a big religiosity with good and evil. But if you ask a non-religious person how you get to that sense of morality, what gives them the basis to build on? How do you know what's good and how do you know what's evil? There's not a lot to build on because Darwinism and naturalism, in the natural world, you don't see morality. It's survival of the fittest. There's no way for us to actually make a claim of morality without a perception and a concept of God. But that doesn't stop people from using it and claiming it and making all these devils and demons. So it's really important for us to actually understand as Christians, do we have an actual, is there a devil? Because a lot of the rest of culture is claiming evils and goods. And if we navigate by like the cultural currency of what those are, we will get lost. We will, like the rest of culture, push our hateful agendas using our perceptions of what good and evil is to get what we want, whether it's agendas pushed within the church or in academia. And in that way, the devil then becomes evil. The portrayal of evil becomes a, a symbol to protect ourselves. But recent historical research traces that our concept of good and evil have little to stand on if it weren't for Christianity. In his book, Dominion, British historian Tom Holland makes the claim that we have benefited as a world society tremendously from Christian morality. And in fact, most of the morality that secular people abide by is an eroded but still recognizable version of the original Christian sculpture of God presented in his Ten Commandments, in his law, and the grace and mission of Jesus. One such review writes of the book Dominion, Tom Holland's basic thesis is that almost the entire set of humanist 
values modern liberals take for granted, such as universal human equality and dignity, separation of church and state, care for the weaker sections of society, suspicion of power, privilege and wealth, condemnation of slavery, cruelty and oppression, valorization of the weak and downtrodden is purely Christian in origin. No other civilized culture had these values or at least foregrounded them in nearly the way that Christianity did. For example, while some thinkers have always been unhappy with slavery, the abolition of slavery was a Christian effort through and through. True, the slave owners had their own biblical justification for slavery, but those who opposed them did so on the basis of their Christian beliefs and won the argument. So I think it's really important for us as we navigate in this city to understand that the very nature of morality that is being claimed and taken by this this world in America is based on a Christian underpinning, but the the nature of the devil has been removed from it and the nature of God has been removed from it. And it is just a human tool to further human ends. And that is viewed as a much better good than getting the deities involved. Like if we can just be humanists that care for and love for one another, then we can do away with this God that hates homosexuals or this God that hates whatever or is chauvinist or racist or whatever claim they make. And this is the way that Christianity is seen by the rest of our country. Like we need to get that through our heads. This is what they see when they see a Christian by and large. But what they don't realize is the secret sauce. Like what is Christian morality exists deep within the fabric and it can't be stripped away. You can't, it will fall apart if we don't keep it integrated in the orthodox historical Christian vision, which requires us to understand that the devil is a real guy, real thing, real person. But interestingly, even Christians don't believe he's real. Don't believe me? Again, Barner Research 2009, nearly six out of 10 Christians strongly agreed or agreed somewhat that Satan is not a living being, but just a symbol of evil. So it's very likely that some of us in this room have taken on the nature of the devil and the concept of spiritual warfare that we'll talk about today as sort of a psychological construct for us to navigate through, a series of metaphors and images for us to work through that help us do psychological and emotional self-help work, that help us do the work of Jesus, but that there isn't actually a force of evil pitted against a force of good known as God and the devil. And I think some of this is actually pretty understandable. I think a lot of Christians say, well, didn't Jesus defeat the devil? So like, he's not a problem anymore. He's defeated on the cross. And so in their world, we live with a dead devil in like a post-nuclear Holocaust wasteland that is the broken world. He's dead, but it's like scorched earth. And this is like the functional way we navigate through our Christian life. And that functional navigation is going to look like this. Wait until Jesus comes back. Just hold it out. Hold up and wait. This is how we will do church. This is how we will survive. And it is anemic. It creates an anemic imagination of church. And it's just flat untrue. In Ephesians 6, Paul has a rebuttal. 
He says, this is after Jesus has died on the cross and been resurrected and ascended. And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. They're alive and well. According to Paul. So we have to live in the spiritual warfare framework. The battlefield that Paul is living out is communicating to us. It's revealed by God through the Holy Scriptures that there is a heart and soul opposed to the way of the good and loving creator. It's opposed to his rescue plan. It's opposed to his redemptive spirit. It's opposed to his forgiveness for all people through Jesus Christ. So in this way, when we look back to the serpent in the Garden of of Eden in Genesis 3, this is not simply like a mythological tool for obedient instruction. Hey, better obey your parents. Look what happened to Adam and Eve. Like that is not what this is for. But people say, hey, you know, it's poetry. It's kind of just like the way the Jewish Israelite people made a metaphor to help them understand their origin place so they could catechize and teach their kids. No. The Christian vision that has been communicated for centuries ever since its origin has always built a mosaic of this enemy of the goodness of God. Why do I call it a mosaic? Because as you actually patch through the Bible and read through and build a theology verse by verse that relates to the devil, it's maybe not as clear and simple as you got in Sunday school or growing up. I know that I had like a very specific vision that I was taught. I had paintings, I had like, you know, the felts you put up, like everything told me the stories about how it actually all definitely was. I have imagery painted in my head. I know how it looked, it's like a movie. But there's so much more mystery to it than that. Always the people of God were conceptualizing based on his revelation and their experience, this devil. What he was about, what he was up to, what he was doing. And so he, he takes different permutations and images because actually it's most helpful for us in our imaginations to not flatten something into just one look. The look I had was like an archangel with wings and a black mop of hair and a black robe with like a belt around him and he had fallen from heaven and like, like that's the vision I had of Lucifer or Satan growing up. But there is a much more imaginative and helpful demonstration given through the Old Testament. Matthew 4, Jesus sees him as the devil. Job 2 as Satan. Revelation as the dragon. Genesis 3 as the serpent. And each of this help us give a sense of who the devil is. And what we can know theologically is that the devil was begotten before us out of God's love and creative power as a being with free will. God created all things on heaven and earth. We know this from Genesis. And he created them how? Good. So this is like, if you drill into just Genesis 1 through 3, you can see that God created all things. He is over all things. He created them all good. So that immediately wipes out this idea that God created an evil force. 
to like what, play this game and charade to like call us onto his side or something. I mean, we get all these weird ideas when we start to try and understand evil. No, God created all things on heaven and earth and he created them good. In fact, he looked at them and he said, they are very good. Paul mimics this when he says in 1 Timothy, everything created by God is good. But the nature of, and we really need to get this, the nature of God's loving respect for things created in his image, whether angels or humans, is that he gave them a certain level of will. For us, he gave what we understand as free will. For the angels, we have really no idea. I can't articulate that. But what we can understand is that the devil went from good to rebellion. How else would we get him? He rebelled against a good creative God who loved him and gave him the will to do so. And then he took Adam and Eve and their offspring and became the authority and power of this dark world. So Satan has a very real authority over the earth. And it actually helps us to understand this because many of us say, how can we have a good God in the face of suffering? This is a question that came up at our cohort the other day. How can we have a good God in the face of suffering? And what we must understand is good evil is the absence of good. Good was created. Evil is the rebellion from the good. And Satan's evil came from within himself as a denial of the good God that created him. So it is in God's very design of love and goodness that evil became possible. And it will not throw God off of his game. This is really super important. As we talk about spiritual warfare, I want to undergird the whole conversation with this. Jesus wins, you guys. Jesus has won. He's winning. And he wins. So while we talk about spiritual warfare, I am not trying to scare you in a conversation of the devil. In fact, doing a lot of my research for this, I I won't mince words. It's dark to read about the devil. Like it was not a fun week to go read about the devil. Like there is inherent power that the devil has just in the essence of evil and reading about the very nature of evil is a dark place. You need Jesus on your side. But it helps us to understand that that, that God did not design a world of evil and brokenness. In fact, and I can't go into all the theology for this, but there is in the broken nature of the world that came post-fall a sense that there are evil things that have happened to this world that are not part of God's design. We can't explain out of evil free will cancer. Like we can't explain out of evil free will some of the natural forces that are destructive death forces that seem, at least to us, opposed to the goodwill of God. But when we understand that Satan has authority and reigns over this world, it helps us understand a little better the mystery of something like cancer. So we, we know that there is a devil. There's a historical Christian Uh, understanding of it. We can see how it even underpins our current sense of morality. We can see how harmful it is to throw him out the window and say he doesn't exist. 
And so this question is how next is how do we know him? What is he like? And then the last question I'm going to talk about is how do we fight him? Okay, so we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about the devil's tactics and our tactics, warfare stuff. There's an adage that you keep your enemies close, right? This is like a political adage. And the idea here is that when your enemies are in the light and close by, you know your, their position, you know the power they have, you know what their voice sounds like, you learn their language, you read the signs they give off, that it is helpful for us. So it's, we, we kind of think, I think sometimes that, well, I just don't want to talk about the devil. Like, I don't want to talk about Satan. There's a good God and he takes care of me. And, and hey, I get it. Like, we all have a different threshold for taking in that kind of material, really dark stuff. But it is not helpful for us to live in, a, in an imaginative universe of our faith where the devil just plain doesn't exist. Because how do we assign his forces and his voice over this world? Where, what are they from? Are they just from other people? Well, now we're going to make people into demons. Right now, we're going to make them responsible for every evil thing. Now it's going to be easy to condemn them. Or is there a force behind it? I actually think that there's like there's something to Islam. If you've ever been to an Islamic country, they don't create images of God. It's like a big no-no. And I actually think there's something to that. We have, we have just created all kinds of visuals, and I'm a visual artist, so I'm like the first one to like, let's draw it, you know? But it, it's much more helpful for us to imagine the devil and keep him close by understanding his personality, his language, how he operates, what he's going to do, where he is. Some of us have an image of Satan that he's like down in hell. Right, that there's like a hell right now and he's down there in the fire. And this is from a lot of medieval artwork that portrayed the devil with his little pitchfork and his horns down in the flames. Stephen Wedgworth writes, there is no biblical reason to believe that Satan was in hell during the old covenant. To the contrary, Satan is presented as prince of the air, entering into heaven itself and roaming the earth in books like Job, prophets like Zechariah. And as we'll see today, when he tempts Jesus. Only on the last day is Satan cast into hell. So Paul knows Satan's authority, the forces of evil and their power. And so what he does to start here as he's closing Ephesians is he just names him to expose him. And I think we can learn a lot from that in our lives. How often do we name a voice in our head, a presence in our life, a force in the world for the evil that underlies its message or the power that is given to it that is from the devil? Because that will help us expose. Now, labeling here is super important. If you mislabel, now you're going to do what the church has done historically. Think of things like Salem witch hunt, right? Think of all these ways where the labeling has been done haphazardly, poorly, or with ulterior motives. So as somebody that like is coming from a reformed tradition that is understanding more of the charismatic tradition, I'm not saying like jump into this like crazy demon warfare. 
and like start calling everything in the name of Jesus a demon to get out. But I am saying like, don't not do that, right? Like th there is a spiritual warfare happening. We need to be comfortable with the fact that the voices we hear are not simply the psychology of what? Of ourselves. They are part of the nature of original sin that is calling us as the devil called Eve to his authority to give up on Jesus. Satan has no authority unless we give up on Jesus. He doesn't, he can't exercise authority over our will like without us giving it to him. And so we typically call this spiritual war a war of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I think those are helpful categories for us to think about. There is a war within us. There is what we want to do in our desires. There is the war, war that the world brings to our doorstep. Circumstances, politics, um, issues with friends and neighbors and cities. And underneath of it is the spirit of the devil. That's really important. Underneath of it is the spirit of the evil forces, the powers of this dark world. And Jesus wins. Jesus knew the devil like Paul understands him. And so Jesus names him as well and exposes him. And he doesn't just expose him. He also, as Tim Keller writes, we must study the devil's methods as Jesus understood them. Satan practices evil subtly. He tempts and accuses people rather than simply overthrowing their will. See, he, he needs them to willingly come to give up on God. So one of the big wake-ups for me in spiritual warfare is that there is no such thing as simply a psychological or emotional or mental health issue or even a physical issue in our bodies or the physical nature of our bodies, that there is a deeper truth underneath it. This does not mean that psychology is untrue. It does not mean that mental health is not a thing. It does not mean that we don't need medicine. Those are all really important ways that we understand how to treat and fight a war against at least the symptoms of evil that are attacking us, sometimes to give us the energy, the will to tackle something. This is why I was grilled in an early sermon when I was talking about mental health and Christians and depression that people were worried I was saying you can't take anti-anxiety meds or something like that. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I am saying is just taking the meds ignores the devil. That there is a spiritual component to the sin that is entangling our lives. And we, when, when we negate that, we're running in very dangerous and unbiblical territory. We'll talk about more the, the pitfalls of that. It's a, there's a tension, there's a fine line. But I think often we were raised as like selective cessationists. And what I mean by cessationists is people who believe that like miracles and signs of wonders just ceased at a certain point in the biblical tradition. The demons all just sort of like stopped after the New Testament. They're not, they're not anymore. They're not, they just went into hiding. But it was funny, like growing up, it was like, hey, demons aren't real, but like don't go play Dungeons and Dragons or mess with an Ouija board. And it was like, okay, 
but like, which is it? You know, like we don't want to, we don't want to mess with even the fact that it could be, but we don't want to entertain that. And I get that there can be a fascination with this kind of stuff that's really unhealthy. But I think what we need to go through as we come up with a new imagination for Jesus and the devil is what I've called a lot re-indexing. We need to rename and re-index the way we think of how we move through this life and what is happening around us. It's important to understand that we are in this spiritual battle. And this is where we get in trouble. So now we get to talk about what I imagine some of you have been thinking about. C.S. Lewis noted in the Screwtape Letters that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So either we don't give them enough power, or we give them too much power. That's what we tend, tend to go. So let's go to the underinflating, not giving them any power. We end up listening to thoughts in our head without realizing it's the devil accusing us, condemning us, tempting us. And that is a sign to us that we haven't kept our enemy close, you guys. I've, I've used this term shadow boxing, that I will, I will have a person or an interaction or an experience that haunts me and I turn it over and over and over again. I exhaust myself fighting against it. I can't seem to rest against it. And the problem with that is that the devil has gotten me into conversation with him. He's gotten me to have a conversation. And I'm listening to something he's saying. And I'm saying, oh, and I'm entertaining that it could be true. And the voices aren't the voices even of people anymore. These aren't factual things they've said. I'm starting to imagine things they might say to me. I'm starting to imagine ways they might want to act towards me. If I go and meet with them, are they going to say this now? And I start to cast them in a condemning light because I have drunk the Kool-Aid of the devil that is condemning me and wants me to condemn other people. Or I assign poor labels to things because I don't know how to assign the voices that I'm hearing. So I assign the wrong things to the devil and the wrong things to God. This happens all the time in the mental game we play in our heads. And maybe I play it more than the rest of you, but my guess is we all play these mental games. When we're, when we're stuck on something, when we're anxious about something, when we're afraid. We're going to look at how Jesus tackles that in the temptation. The second is we overinflate, and this deals with concepts like superstition, right? Michael Heiser, who writes a lot about this if you want a deeper dive, says he's actually not that much of a charismatic. He's not like a Ghostbusters. We're out to hunt down all of the ghosts and get them out with some special spell, right? He says there is no demon hunter attitude in the New Testament. We do not have Jesus vampire slayer in the New Testament. He is not hunting out every demon to get it out. He deals with demons as they approach him. And he deals with them in authority because he is totally safe and he speaks truth to lies. And then I've seen this actually quite a bit, especially in this town, maybe it's in other places, that there is this sense, almost like an excuse that I didn't get my homework done, that I've been under attack this week, right? That there's just somebody must have done, I've even had people say, somebody's cast a spell on me and I've got these demons and they're haunting me and I don't know what to do. This happens all the time. And what that does is that makes you a victim, not responsible often for your actions. Now, I'm not judging everybody who does that. I'm just saying that when you overinflate the power of evil and underplay the grace of Jesus, 
you give devil, the devil and demons more power than they have. Okay, so let's look at a schematic of the devil's schemes in Matthew 4. If you have a Bible and you can open it to Matthew 4, we'll be here for just a minute. I want to look at the devil's tactics as it relates to the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4. So Matthew 4, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. What is the first thing that the devil does? He asked Jesus to prove himself worthy. If you are the Son of God. As believers in Jesus, or ones who come to believe in Jesus, we no longer need to feel unworthy of love. Being lovable is not a nice idea, it's a truth. We are loved. And so we can immediately turn the devil on this game and say, get out of here. We don't need to prove that we are worthy by doing whatever he suggests we do. When he accuses us, what he's doing is he's challenging our identity. The devil, when he appears to you, whether it's through words from a friend, through words from an acquaintance, through a boss, through voices in your head, what he will suggest to you is that you are unloved. You are unlovable. And he can say, but if you do this, you'll be worthy of being loved. You just need to get strong. You just need to get tough. You just need to be hard back. You just need to show them vengeance. You just need to get off with them because they're awful and they'll never be good and move on. They're worthless. Condemning language is the devil's tool as he challenges our identity. And then what he does is he invents desire. He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But how does Jesus respond? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the devil like taught Madison Avenue how to invent desire. He's like, hey, here's a thing that you need. And as soon as I present it and put it in front of you, you're going to want it. And because of our inherited sin, we just have a natural proclivity to desire things apart from God. And so we have to work, as Tabitha talked about, swim upstream to fight against those things. Is Jesus hungry? Well, we know he is. It says in verse two, he was hungry. So yeah, duh, he was hungry. But Jesus doesn't, believes that the devil asking him to make things into bread when he doesn't actually need them because he is worthy is an invented desire. That's so wild. Like, all of the things we deal with in this life are in some sense invented desires if we believe in Jesus. We can do without anything except Jesus if we need to. Now, is Jesus saying, I never ever have to eat? No, he's fasting right now. He's decided not to eat. Like, he's gone out intentionally fasting. And the devil preys on his will and says, I don't know if that was a good idea. You know, like this committing to God thing and the restrictions you have, I don't know if that's a good idea. And so when we don't rebuff the devil and listen to him, as Keller says, we fall to the trick, the accusation of the devil. Accusation is when the devil blinds us to the love and grace of God. And then the next thing he does is he tempts our trust. 
Matthew 4, verse 5 through 7, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. If you know God loves you and will save you, why not show me? Prove it. Like, don't you trust him? And so the devil will try to get us to command God and get him to do our bidding. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, he's saying, why don't you have God do what you want? If you trust him to do anything for you and he loves you, then God is at your beck and call. So make him serve you. And Jesus says, again, as it is written, as it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Just as a quick aside, he's also misconstruing scripture here, which is a common failing for us as Christians. I mean, how many people have you talked to that have misquoted a verse and it gives them permission to do what they want? See, God is in service to them now. He wants me to be wealthy. Sure, he, he made people wealthy but he's not giving you an excuse to give up on him to go pursue wealth just because you can misconstrue a verse and get him to serve you and back you. The last thing he does here is he waves the carrot. Now this one, like we all get this one. He offers worldly influence which he can actually offer. That's the wild thing. He has authority over the kingdoms of the earth And he says, he took them to the very high mountain and showed them all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all this I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. All of this I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And I think what this is is a classic ends justify the means argument. Classic. And what the devil does is he gets us beaten down to a place and gets us alone, which is where we usually do ends justify the means kind of thing, right? It's very socially inappropriate to have the ends justify the means. Maybe if you're in a group of people who all agree with what you're doing. I mean, businesses do it all the time. Families do it all the time. But what he does is he gets everybody on the same wrong page. And then he says, look, like, you will get powerful. And it's the truth, you will get powerful. The mafia became the mafia because it works. (laughs) Like you will get powerful when you take the devil up when he waves the carrot and you will leave God behind. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And by the way, what Jesus says right there, I missed the beginning of verse 10, be gone, Satan. I think we need to enter into our vocabulary as people may be grappling. Maybe we have a lot of experience in the world of battling the devil in our lives of just saying, get out of here, Satan. Get out. I'm not going to listen anymore. I'm not going to give you any airtime. I'm going to bring this to somebody else. I'm going to put it to bed and I'm going to rest in the grace of Jesus. I'm going to bed. I'm, I'm going to go have fun. And this gets to how we fight the devil. Jesus had rebuttals. He had things that he was able to say, but we cannot necessarily mimic Jesus 
into our way in success against the devil. Jesus can, but we can't. Jesus is secure, and this is how he fights. He's secure in his identity, first of all. Classic baiting, if you are the son of God, and Jesus says, I don't need to play your game. I'm not taking the bait. I'm secure. He's secure in scripture. He doesn't question scripture when he quotes it as a rebuttal. How many times have we said, yeah, this is what God says, and then we go home and we go, ah, oh, like, I don't even know if this is true. And we doubt and we let the devil in because the devil is a deceiver. And most of all, and I think particularly pertinent to our church right now, he is secure in God's overall mission and God's specific timing. You, what does the devil tempt him to do? I'll give you all of these people. I have authority to give all of them to you, everyone on earth. Well, the mission of Jesus is to come rescue everybody, right? So in some ways, it would feel almost like it's God's mission. Okay, I, I, this is how I'm going to get everybody. This is how I'm going to do it. Power is how I'm going to do it. Because just for a second, let's create a different imagination for this event. Says the devil's right in front of him. Imagine that this is just playing through Jesus' head. What would this conversation in his head look like? Well, Jesus, you know, you're kind of playing the rabbi thing, but what if you start a revolution? Like, what if you overthrow Caesar? Like, what if you use your miracles in the battlefield? Like, what if you take real power? You could take over this world. And he says, no, God has a mission and God has a timing. And I will serve him and worship him and listen to him. So that's how Jesus does it. But if we say, oh, great, okay, I'm just going to do, that's the, that's the devil's tactics. This is how Jesus responds. I'm going to do that, and it's going to work, and I'm going to beat Satan. Well, we would be ignoring Paul, first of all. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So remember, we're family now with Jesus. So don't run off and try and fight the spiritual war on your own. Jesus is fighting it, has fought it, and will fight it to the death of Satan. And so this is where I think the church gets in a lot of trouble, and we in, in ourselves get in a lot of trouble when we begin to play the spiritual warfare game or the savior game. We say, well, this is all on my shoulders. I have to get this friend to Jesus. I've got to fight the city of Portland. I've got to, whatever, I've got to do it. And it's not the gospel. It's just flat, not the good news of Jesus. We will fail at that game. Because the typical thing, I mean, I, I was a child of the 90s. Everybody had WWJD bracelets, right? What would Jesus do? Do what Jesus would do. Well, it's, it's nice. It's really good. The problem is that the bracelet should say, what has Jesus done? Because that's the gospel. What would Jesus do is salvation by works. What would Jesus do is I can be good enough to earn my way into heaven. But what has Jesus done is grace, peace, truth, understanding. Jesus in John 10 says, I am the door. He opened the door. He's calling us and allowing us through it. And eventually he closes it so that sin can be no more. That's the door. That's the gospel. So I said this morning in a, in a small meeting we had with a few of the, of the staff here that are handling kids ministry, I said, 
at Citizens Church, the gospel of Jesus is that we have a big fire come around. Not because we got lots of people, not because everything's so perfect for your family and everything's gonna feel like a mega church, because we have the joy of Jesus and joy is infectious. We've got a bigger fire than anywhere else in the city, except other churches and followers of Jesus. I mean, like we've got the fire. Welcome people into it and act like you actually have it. Like act like the grace of Jesus and the fullness and the peace of Jesus is yours. Make redemption louder than condemnation in our inner voice. I am redeemed by Jesus. And then I get to go make more of Jesus than myself. I was thinking today, everything good you hear up front that I say is Jesus, everything bad is me. That's the gospel of Jesus, right? Anything you're like, man, that's not Jesus. Anything you're like, all right, that's Jesus. And that's the kind of gospel humility we have to have as followers of Jesus. That allows us to like let go of failures. I, I heard like a, a, that show Ted Lasso, somebody was telling me about it and they said one of the funny things he says is he's a coach on a sports team and he says, you gotta be more like a goldfish. And they're like, why? Because they have the shortest memory, he says. Like we, we rack over things and we make it our identity. Our failures all become part of our identity and then we have the spirit of defeat because we can't get past what we've failed at. So maybe we need a coach to say, be like the goldfish. The gospel of Jesus has saved you and what has happened does not impact Jesus's love for you right now and the fact that his church will triumph against the gates of hell. And so when we look at this, let's look a little bit more at how it works then to do spiritual warfare in the name of Jesus. That means inside the door. That means behind him, with him before us, as we sang this morning. One thing we have to do, this armor passage, like we've all seen like the pictures with the armor with the verse underneath it. We, this armor imagery is good, but sometimes we get like too wrapped up in the details. We say, oh, the belt, how does the belt work? How does the breastplate work? Oh, the sword, okay, the word's the sword. How do I fight with the, the word? And I think what Eugene Peterson says well in his translation, he doesn't get wrapped up in that. He just says, these things, salvation, peace, um, faith, are more than words. They're protective armor. They're battle, they make you battle ready. And I think for a lot of us, the idea that we're saved is a nice abstract concept, but it's not like a lived reality. We don't, we don't build our habits out of our salvation. And that's where I think we have, myself included, a poor imagination. Like we just don't have a great imagination for these things. We haven't really made them real. I mean, look, the breastplate of righteousness. If you, uh, I assume a lot. Who knows what you all think about the breastplate of righteousness? But when I read that, I think that means I need to be right more and then I'll be wearing the armor. Like if I'm righteous, then I'll be strong against the devil. The blessed breastplate of righteousness, right? No, Romans 3.22, and this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, when we do it without Jesus, we just simply can't fight. The battle will get beat to shreds because it's not about our righteousness. I thought of a, a, maybe a helpful illustration. So I, as a dad, 
I have kid time where I play with the kids and I'm teaching them board games, especially ones that are more interesting than sorry. And so I'm trying to like teach them these board games, right? And if I want to win at the board game, my kids will not want to play the board game, right? If I really try and win and actually win, because I probably will, right? Like against a five-year-old, I'm gonna win at Monopoly. And so if he loses at Monopoly the first time, is he gonna keep playing Monopoly? Nah, maybe. Parenting styles, who knows? You might be able to convince me, but the probability is like, I need to let him win for a while because I'm playing a different game. I'm not playing Monopoly when I play Monopoly with Ezra. I'm playing parenting Ezra into becoming a good board game player that wants to learn and grow and love me. And I love him and I show him by actually losing at the game because I'm not playing a game. When I lose at Monopoly, I'm winning with Ezra. But this is how spiritual warfare works. When we lose at the world's game, we win spiritually more often than not. Now, I'm not telling you all to become paupers and become, you know, whatever, I'm not. But what I'm saying is when you realize it's a different game, you don't mind losing. And that is the gospel of Jesus. Like that is how Jesus operated. His MO was like, I don't need to win at this. I'm teaching you how to play the more important game. I'm teaching you the long game, we've called it. The eternal game. But here's another example for like an environmentalist, right? If you see a grass lawn, what do you think? Desert, right? Pollinator desert, nothing for bees. Versus if you are striving to keep up with the Joneses and want a perfectly green grass lawn, you're thinking that's the trophy. It's all a matter of perspective, right? Pollinator desert, best thing ever. It depends what game you're playing. And Jesus says we live in an upside down kingdom and the devil wants us to see wrongly. He wants you to compete and condemn and be jealous and covetous, which could happen with either lawn, by the way. Like the, the point isn't the thing. The point is how you play the game and what you're after. And I'm just trying to use this concept as an illustration so we understand like the gospel game is just a different game. That's why Christians are weird. Like that's why we're unusual people. And there's something oddly infectious about the way of Jesus because we're tired of failing at the old game. Even the winners lose at the old game. Even the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks lose eventually. But when we believe in the grace of Jesus, we will be triumphant because he is at the helm. But this constant achievement mindset will be the death of us. If we live the gospel of Jesus, not as the gospel, but as salvation by works, which is what Paul talks about all across the New Testament when he talks about the law. We will have a constant achievement mindset and it will be the death of us, it will be the death of our church. Keller writes this, he says, when people do not build their lives on the standing of the gospel, they are insecure, guilt-written, defensive, quarreling, bigoted, selfish, inward-looking, and afraid. He says that leads to a dead church that can't grow. It's just, it's kind of scathing when you think about it. But what the point is, there is ram what I'm trying to say is the point is your individual spiritual battle that you feel is all your own is not all your own. It's the churches and the church is impacted 
by your battle and the ground you allow Satan to have that he doesn't need to have, that you don't need to give him, is impacted by that and also is there to help you understand the gospel so that you can wake up, stand up, and while he's biting at your ankles, you can say it doesn't matter. It's only when I curl up in the fetal position that you can do anything to me. When I stand up, I am strong in the grace of Jesus. Okay, so for practices for us, for spiritual warfare, first of all, I just want us to become more comfortable with this term. Like, we live in a spiritual battle. Pay attention to the voices you are listening to and practice speaking truth against them. One of the members here said like that they prayed a really intense prayer because they felt like there was just really chaotic, evil stuff happening, getting in the minds of their children and just like crazy bad behavior and they prayed it over them and it changed. And the first thought was, well, that was like a spell. That was like amazing. But of course, the second time, it doesn't necessarily work as well. It's not necessarily the words. It was speaking truth against it from their own heart that changed their perception as well, right? I'm not saying the words don't have power. I'm saying that when we actually take the energy to speak truth against him, it totally changes our posture. We see it totally different. We start playing a different game. Now, even though there might be evil energy in our house, it can't win. And it can't defeat us. And we become secure in our identity and our worth. I think we can practice patience and waiting on God faithfully. And I've seen this a lot in our church, and it's amazing. I've, I've just noticed how often the word steadfast endurance is used in the New Testament. That like the answer to like every kind of suffering seems to be like steadfast endurance, man. Just like keep going. It's like the last thing we want to hear, but it honestly works. Now, it doesn't work to just keep plodding on on your own strength. That will wear you down. But steadfast endurance as a Christian in faith to Jesus is the prescription for this life. Not heeding the heart's desires, but taking the desires to God and asking him how he would change you. I think this has been helpful with practices like fasting. Some of us have practiced Lent type practices and kept them going. You learn to say no to urges just because you said you would have the will to do it. And I think for some of us, just practicing that kind of will is really helpful in our life. Some of us haven't done it very much. Maybe we're naturally thin. We don't have to say no to food. Maybe we naturally, whatever, we don't have to practice these habits. But setting a timer and getting up at a certain hour for a certain practice is a really good way to say no to certain urges and commit and start to understand that I don't have to heed my heart's desires. One more, taking the hill with grace. So as an illustration, I was feeling a lot of attack this week and as is my practice when I prepare a sermon, I go, I better do this before I tell anyone else to do it. So I said, okay, what's gonna help this? And I thought, well, I'm just gonna do like a random act of kindness. I'm just gonna go take somebody something nice couple people that live close by. I feel like junk, like I don't even like myself. I need to go, Jesus loves me and I'm gonna go serve. And I just went out and served for 30 minutes or something. And it, it made a change. 
It wasn't that I was ready to, it wasn't that I wanted to, it doesn't, wasn't that I like felt like serving, it was that I knew that getting out of myself and looking out of my turmoil and looking out to other people's needs and serving them in the name of Jesus would help take the hill. And then Paul talks about praying in the spirit on all kinds of occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. And I think we'll talk more about prayer and some specific kinds of prayer over this series. The bottom line is the flesh can't fight spiritual warfare. Only the spirit can fight spiritual warfare. It is only the Jesus in you that can stand up against the devil. So if there ain't much Jesus in you, you're going to get messed up. And so that's what we have to do. Um, I want to apply this metaphor just briefly to our church and what I see for our church in this battlefield understanding is that we are an outpost. I've talked about this before. We're an outpost. And what does an outpost do? It's a refueling station for grace. People are out on the battlefield fighting all over the place with their jobs. They're fighting as parents. They're fighting as teachers, nurses. They're fighting in all kinds of different ways. And the church should be a refueling station for grace. And the only place that can come from is Jesus. The church is a centering place for truth. And the only centering comes from Jesus. So we are full of grace and truth here. If you got the weekly, if you didn't, let me know if you did. I had three practices there. One of them we're gonna work on a cohort. So the first one was imaginative reading. We've exercised that a little bit in the sermon, how to read a text imaginatively, how to make it personal. Um, the second one that I wanna talk about is imaginative conversation. I'm gonna try this out, I would ask you to join me. I'm going to try really hard when I meet with people that are Christians, that I, just anybody, ask what is Jesus doing in your life? I think it's just an interesting, going to be an interesting experiment. Imaginative conversation. Why do I say it's imaginative? We tend to say, hey, how's your work going? Hey, how are the kids? Which is like, fine. But what we are really trying to do is get to know the person when we do that. We're just trying to make conversation the only way we know how. If they're a Christian, ask them, surprise them. What is Jesus doing in your life? It forces us to use our imaginations. What is Jesus doing in my life? See what they say. If they're not a Christian, I would ask them, what's the big focus for you right now in life? Get to know them. Get, what are they up against? What are they? Oh, you know, my mom's dying and it's just really hard. All right, I get that. You know, versus how's work versus how are the kids? Just, just imaginative conversation. And then what we're going to work on in our cohorts is imaginative personal storytelling. I'm, a, I'm like avoiding the word testimony because like we all... Uh, testimony. But like, it's testimony. It's imaginative autobiography with Jesus. How is Jesus part of my life story? How has he been? How is he? And how do I imagine what he wants to do with my life? How has Jesus won? How is he winning? And how will he win? But personal with my narrative. We're going to work on this with each other. I think it's going to be really fun. Um, because I think a lot of us haven't had a chance to do this kind of work together, to really think about our lives in that way. All right, let's pray.